A very warm welcome to you wherever and whenever you're listening to the Baltic Triangle podcast, episode number 45, supported by Baltic Creative CIC, and a big thanks to them for their continued support. It's really appreciated. We're the podcast where you can hear from the real movers and shakers in Liverpool City region, whether they're involved in business or culture or both. I'm Mick Ord. And I'm Mark Reeson. Well, today our guest says a cultural theme to the podcast as we hear from two creatives who work with communities to create accessible and thought-provoking art. I've been chatting to the award-winning designer Peter Lloyd, whose Ukrainian peace garden in the Baltic Triangle is testament to the city's unique links with Ukraine. I just wanted to make people aware in Liverpool what a Ukrainian garden can or does look like. Gardens can be a place of tranquility to de-stress from everyday life, so I wanted to come into the garden and for them to be happy and to feel at home um, and give them hope that there are better times ahead. More from Peter in a few minutes. Meanwhile, I've been to visit the Garston studio of veteran community artist and activist Alex Karina, who spent the last 40 years working with the community on an amazing range of artistic projects, including one in the 90s for people with drug problems. The irony is in Liverpool that when, when we actually added up uh, who we funded and what we funded, we were funding more community arts projects than the Arts Council on the basis that the best form of drugs prevention and getting kids off the streets and getting people involved was doing it through the arts. And more from Alex later. Well, Mick, Eurovision has come and gone, and uh, I think it's safe to say it's been a, a roaring success with a lot of legacy stuff still left up around the sea, and increasingly more and more people coming to visit in the sunny weather. Yeah, you would hope so. I mean, um, the weather has just been amazing. I just um, I just wonder whether our summer's over now, because May and June were brilliant, as they often are. And, then, and if my memory serves me right, July and August are always a bit disappointing, sorry to be the doomsayer. Maybe it'll be gorgeous. Well, we can sometimes have what they call bizarrely an Indian summer, though, can't we? And it can be really, really nice halfway up until, you know, the middle of September, can't it? So who knows? Who can tell? Um, looking forward to the first game of the season, Mick? No, no. I'm an Evertonian. Um, <laughs> but, I'm, you know, to answer your original point about Eurovision, um, I think it will attract more people to the city region over the summer because people will have seen it on the telly and people said, well... You know, I, I heard people say, oh, we'll have to come back here. So it was good all round, I think. And, and it's nice to have the Ukrainian legacy, as you say, and for them to be reflected in today's podcast. Well, before we hear from Peter Lloyd, Mark, I just want to say a big thanks again to the Baltic Creative CIC, which supports the digital and creative sector in the Baltic Triangle business area. If you want to find out a little bit more about the work of Baltic Creative, check out their website, baltic-creative.com The links between the city of Liverpool and Ukraine have been much in the news in the past few months, especially with the city hosting the Eurovision Song Contest because of the terrible war in the country. The city is to continue with these links and it's perhaps best exemplified by the Ukrainian Peace Garden on Jamaica Street, not far from where we're recording the podcast today. The garden is an oasis of calm in the busyness city area and it was created by local award-winning designer Peter Lloyd. Peter wanted to bring a piece of Ukraine to Liverpool, both for the local Ukrainians living in the city and, of course, for the many thousands of people who came here during the Eurovision contest and way beyond. It's a great example of true community arts. 
the Liverpool Ukrainian Society contributed to the final design, and there was also involvement from the Association of Ukrainians in Great Britain, and also the Big Help Project. We even had some local children from St Vincent de Paul Catholic Primary School leaving peace messages throughout the garden itself. I caught up with Peter to find out some more about his work on the Peace Garden. So the idea to do the Ukrainian Peace Garden first came about the back end of last year. And so I was on a programme which I was just finishing with the University of Liverpool leadership programme that I was doing. At graduation I was chatting to one of my colleagues and we thought, you know, Liverpool, we need to leave this legacy um, for Eurovision. Got this great opportunity um, to make Liverpool and the Ukrainians proud. And I just thought it was a really good idea to present a design um, a Ukrainian peace garden to bring a little bit of Ukraine to Liverpool for a few weeks during the actual competition and beyond as well. And you're a gardener and a landscape artist anyway, aren't you, by a trade? So how, how long had you sort of been looking at that site? We hadn't really. Um, so it was the person I was chatting to um, off my course, so Nicole Bamfrey, um, and she put me in touch with Fiona Shaw, um, who's the chair for the Baltic Triangle Area CIC, because we thought initially we're building this Ukrainian Peace Garden, it needs to be somewhere in the city for the Eurovision, which is firstly accessible, and it made sense for it to be in the Baltic Triangle, with it being the creative hub of the city. Um, so the idea to begin with was let's have it in the Baltic Triangle, and then obviously when we got in touch with Fiona, we thought the Baltic Green will be the perfect location for her, um, given that it's not really fully utilised or it wasn't at the time. I was talking to a few people around the Baltic about if they're using it, and everybody's been using it. They've been sitting at picnics, they've been, you know, chilling out and, and, and just, you know, generally using the area. So it does actually have a legacy for sure. Tell me a little bit about the design aspect of it then. Was it difficult? Was it tricky? I wouldn't say it was tricky. So as a company, we do specialise in designing and building sensory gardens and gardens for wellness to improve accessibility um, and to improve the whole mental and physical health of communities. However, it's a Ukrainian peace garden. I've not been to Ukraine before and I don't know what it is or what it means to have a Ukrainian garden. So we had to do a lot of consultation didn't have to, I could have guessed it, I could have winged it, but I wanted it to be an authentic um, Ukrainian peace garden. So the consultation process and the research with the Ukrainian refugees was really important in the city. You've touched on the Ukrainian refugee population of Liverpool then. How, how much did they get involved and, and how easy was it for you to get access to the, the community itself? Quite easy. So from the very beginning, you've had a lot of support. Um, as I mentioned, Fiona um, and also our local um, ward councillor Steve Mumby at the time and um, put me in touch with the Big Help Project which is a charity based in Liverpool over in Kensington um, and as part of their programme they help um, the Ukrainian refugees they host the Ukrainian refugee focus group every Friday lunchtime where they can come in ask for help, ask for support it's just a three hour walking event so I was introduced to um, the Big Help Project specifically the Association of Ukrainians Great Britain-Liverpool um, Liverpool branch. So I went in beginning of January to say to them, this is what I think we should do for Eurovision, um, to bring a little bit of Ukraine over to Liverpool. And it was back. They thought it was a great idea. So that first session with them was just about getting initial ideas from them, getting them to send me some photographs, pictures, images, 
of their own garden, maybe in Ukraine, family and friends, or links to you know notable landscape designers um, over in Ukraine, and um, for me to kind of put together um, and develop that design. Give me some sense then of what it is to have a Ukrainian garden. You know, give me some idea of the flowers or the the style of it. What is it like? One of the big takeaways for Ukrainian gardens is productive gardening. So whether you live in the city in Ukraine or whether you live in the countryside, um, they have allotments. So all of the plants in the garden have some use, whether that use is in the kitchen um, or whether that use is for medicinal purposes. So that was one of the big takeaways. Um, I wanted every plant, every tree. Um, so I proposed, you know, we've got, I think about seven or eight trees in the garden at the moment. Um, apple trees, pear trees, crab apple trees, and we've got rowan trees, so the, the berries can be used in jams and tarts. Um, and yeah, just a range of different edibles. The hedging, so we've got a hedge around the garden. We've got hawthorn, blackthorn, crab apple, dogwood. Um, it can all be used um, in the kitchen or by wildlife as well. Um, all the plants in the garden, we've got a section in the garden specifically designed as an allotment and because they grow their own fruit, vegetables and herbs and ornamental planting. So we've got some ornamental planting in the borders. Um, there's a little bit of a balance between choosing plants which were Ukrainian, but also plants which look good in May. There's going to be an ex always an expectation element from the public walking past that you want the garden to be in colour when it's opened. So we had to introduce some colour, herbaceous perennials, shrubs, um, just so it has all year, all year round interest as well. I think one thing I would say is that I think it would have been so obvious for you to have gone for a Ukrainian themed garden that literally had yellow and blue flowers all over it. And it's something that you actively worked against, isn't it? Absolutely. Um, it wouldn't have been a true Ukrainian garden. Um, and I just wanted to make people aware in Liverpool what a Ukrainian garden can or does look like. And I wanted Ukrainian people to come into the garden and feel like they were at home and that, you know, they can't be in their own country at the moment. Gardens can be a place of tranquility to de-stress from everyday life. So I wanted them to come into the garden and for them to be happy and to feel at home um, and give them hope that there are better times ahead. How much of a sense of responsibility did you have to, to feel like you needed to do this authentically? Yeah, I took the responsibility quite serious. I obviously, that was the brief for me that I'd set myself. It wasn't something which the Ukrainian said to me, we want this garden to be like our, like our home. That wasn't how it was. But the brief that I set myself was, it's really important that this garden is reflective of a Ukrainian style garden, both maybe in the country and in the city. So the idea is we didn't use the whole of Baltic Green. We used a section of it in the middle because I wanted, we only had a limited budget. So I wanted the garden to have high impact. So I thought it'd be one particular area for the garden. It would look better than having a diluted across the whole green. And um, so the actual garden itself gives the idea that that is the city garden. But on the outside, we planted some trees um, to form like an orchard and wildflower meadow, which can hopefully be developed um, and act as a catalyst for future regeneration of the green. It really is amazing. And I love the idea that you've gone that little extra yard just to make sure that it was authentic. 
I did go past a few times when you were doing it, and I, I can remember, you know, driving past and just slowing the car down a bit just to kind of get a bit of a, a, you know, a look at what was going on. You had a very short lead-up time in reality, didn't you? We did. We only had about three, well, we had four full weeks, but we were unfortunate to have a lot of bank holidays. Um, so we had about three weeks in total over four weeks, which is probably about an average time frame for the scale of project. Um, however, we did have a big team. Um, we had specialist people, so we had our plantsmen, we had our hard landscapers who were doing the crazy paving. Crazy paving is quite common in Ukraine as well. And um, we had a guy building the wishing well, doing the planting, um, doing the timber work. So we had a lot of specialist people getting involved, but obviously we had that date in mind. The opening date was on the Wednesday, so we had to make sure you know, there are time pressures and we're used to time pressures because we've done gardens before for flower shows where we've had to turn gardens around and it's always that those last few days which you don't ever imagine, you know, getting a garden to look picture perfect when it's opened. So it does take a lot of time um, and a lot of dedication to get the garden looking at its best for the opening date. Um, but it's something which I'm quite passionate about and I really enjoy. Was it hard to get the plants? It wasn't, no. Um, so we work a lot with a load of local suppliers um, up in Southport, McGull, um, one in Warrington, and we use the nursery over in Manchester as well. Usually we just use one supplier and we get everything delivered. But because of the nature of the project with the community element, um, we did get a lot of our plants either reduced that cost price, generosity of a lot of businesses. Um, so... It involved me doing a lot of kind of traveling to and throwing, picking up materials, picking up plants. So we got a lot of stuff discounted, but quality wise, they are top quality plants. And I wouldn't say they were difficult. The only difficulty probably was getting the plants in the right condition at the right time. And um, so it was very important for me to go and personally select the plants that I wanted because I knew that they were going to be looking good um, for the kind of the week or two of the Eurovision. There were some other plants which are common to Ukraine. So we've got some viburnums in the garden. That's one of the national plants for Ukraine. And um, we had some sunflowers in the garden as well, which we actually grew um, ourselves. Um, and we also had a community element to it as well. So we were working quite closely with Roots in the City and Farm Urban, local horticultural enterprises, because we wanted to grow things ourselves and involve the community. Give me an idea of, of any other support that you might have had along the way then to get the garden ready. We've had lots and lots of support. Um, so one of the big things to begin on was the community elements and collaboration and the project wouldn't have happened or have been successful without the support of um, local businesses, first and foremost, who have offered plants um, at cost price, um, materials, hard landscaping materials. We've been given pallets of stone to use for free um, because of the nature of the project. They wanted to support it and make it all happen. The actual doing of the works as well. So for the allotment side of the garden, um, we work quite closely with Farm Urban um, and Roots in the City um, in terms of growing the local um, fruit and vegetables. We grew all of the vegetables from seed earlier this year. We've also been helped by St. Vincent's Primary School, which is around the corner, and they helped 
paint and decorate the peace poles. So as you walk into the garden, the footpath is flanked by a load of timber posts at different heights. And we gave a brief to the children, the primary school children, and we gave them a little bit of autonomy, but it was their job to you know, represent and paint what they thought was peace. Um, so we gave them a little bit of a brief, um, but we just let them get on with it, and they really enjoyed it. Firm believer that if you involve younger people or the community, they're going to have more of a vested interest in the garden and they're going to want to care for it in the years to come. Um, and that was, you know, one of the drivers in bringing the school in onto the project with the thanks to the, obviously the introductions made by, by Steve, the councillor. So let's get on to how it was received then. You've put in all this hard work, you've managed to get it done on time, you, you know, you've had the opening ceremony, shall we say. Um, talk to me about how it's been received since you've finished it and give me some sense of who's been down there to visit it and, 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 and what they've said. I'd say since the garden's been, so after the opening ceremony, I've been impressed because it's always difficult when you put so much into a project, how it's going to be received by people. But I think it's been quite positive so far. This is our baby, we've designed it, we've built it. And when you leave a project, you're just hoping that people are going to look after it. Um, and you kind of come back the following week, hoping that everything's going to be still intact. But I've been you know, overwhelmed by the amount of people using the garden, just sitting in the garden in the daytime, even evening as well, using these chess tables. Chess is quite big in Ukraine as well. And people just having lunch in the garden, sitting down, enjoying the, you know, enjoying the wildlife. Um, sunbathing, as I was walking in before, there were people sunbathing around the garden. I've got friends now who pass the garden, business colleagues who pass the garden quite frequently. They take pictures of the garden, of it being used, and send them to me. And it's, that's the most satisfying thing about the garden, seeing that area being used, because it would not have been utilised the way it is now had it not been done. What was it like then to go down there when the festival itself was on for the Eurovision Song Contest? It was busy, it was vibrant um, during the contest itself. The garden didn't actually open until the Wednesday. Um, so at the opening ceremony, we were um, we were lucky to have one of the Everton Ukrainian footballers to come and open the garden. Um, so he came on the Wednesday and because of the, st the strict timeframes of the project, we were working pretty much right to the wire um, until the lunchtime on the Wednesday to get everything perfect for it. The Eurovision itself was that week. So the Wednesday, I think the second semi-final was on the Thursday and the final was on the, Friday, on the Saturday. So I think over time it was busy, but I think now that people are starting to become aware that there's a garden there to be used, I think it's getting even more busier than what it was even at the Eurovision itself. Did you have many Ukrainians come down and have a look at it? We did, yes. So um, we had the chair for the Association of Ukrainians Great Britain Liverpool branch that came along um, and they brought along some of the local refugees as well um, who, you know, were very, very impressed by the garden overall, as well as the um, Vitaly Mikolenko from Everton who came to open the garden. Um, and I wanted them to come into the garden and feel like they were at home. Must be quite an emotional experience for you. It was. Um, it was hard work, um, but... I really enjoyed it. It's something which, you know, designing a garden for the and building the garden for the greater good. It's not just about putting a garden in for private use in somebody's house. It's the fact that this garden's going to be enjoyed by communities. It's going to bring people together um, for weeks, months, and hopefully years to come. That was the big driver for me. 
Let's talk about the future then. Let's talk about the kind of people that you'd like to see using the garden going forward. And let's also talk about the legacy of it and how we're going to make sure that it stays in tip-top condition for as long as it can. Well, I do hope the garden will be used um, as it is now throughout the summer um, and beyond. So we are working closely with Fiona, the Balta Triangle Area CIC, um, on putting together a longer-term maintenance plan for it. It is the responsibility of the council, but obviously the locals in the Baltic Triangle have a vested interest as well. So it's important that, you know, we, we put together a maintenance plan so that we all know what should be done in the garden at the right time. So that, you know, pruning is done of certain plants, growing of crops is done. Um, if they're going to continue using the allotment area as well, that that's managed effectively. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to what the future holds for the garden as well. And... Also, from an accessibility point of view as well, the garden is designed in line with DDA, which is the Disability Discrimination Act. So one of the chess tables in the garden, we've allowed, we've got three chairs, so that allows for any wheelchair users to come in and use it. However, an accessible garden isn't just about physical accessibility um, and allowing for wheelchairs. It's also to allow for people across the country and across the world to use the garden as well. So one of the big projects that we had on it was we were working with a local translation company, Chataway, uh, with Sandra Scott, who was, so we had a description, rather than giving out leaflets and having paper, as you walk into the garden, there's a QR code, um, an information sign, which you can scan, um, and it'll take it through to a website, which will have a you know half a page description of the background of the garden, key features, key plants. So the idea was for the duration of the Eurovision, people visiting from the continent could come into the garden, scan the QR code and understand what the garden is and why it's there for, rather than them just walking past and saying, oh, that's a nice garden, and I'm carrying on walking. It was important to make them understand what it was about. We have all that information now on our website for people across the continent to look at as well. Uh, shortly after the garden was completed, we did a walkthrough of the garden, 360 tour, so that'll be put onto our website shortly so that we can send the link to any Ukrainian refugees in Ukraine or just generally people across the world so that anybody in a different country can go on the website and they can do a walkthrough and have a tour on the site and read in their language what the garden is about. So that is kind of the, the accessibility element of the project. How can people keep up to date with what you're up to and also with uh, any other updates and developments there are on, on the actual garden itself then? Where should they go to? So in terms of future for the garden, we're going to be, well, we've got information on the garden on our website, on the Gardens by Peter Lloyd website. Um, and we're going to be, in terms of long-term maintenance, we're going to be feeding in and working with the Balta Triangle CIC to ensure we're going to be giving them the right information for whether that's your newsletters. Um, we're still in talks with them um, and how we're going to achieve that, but just to make sure that the garden is, is looked after properly. Peter, I just want to sort of conclude by saying what a fantastic thing that you've done. You've kind of put something on the ground in the in the Baltic that's going to be there as a legacy to, uh, to an event that uh, I think everyone that was involved in it can safely say was a tremendous success for the city and, uh, and certainly for the profile of the city across the world. Um, so well done you, because it must have been hard work for you. It was. It was hard work, but very much a labour of love. 
really enjoyed the project and I hope, you know, we can continue working with the Potter Triangle area CIC just to make sure that the garden is looked after. They're not just clients for one project, clients for life, because that is our pride and joy. We really enjoyed designing the garden, building the garden, um, and we want to see it have a long-term future. Lovely to hear from Peter there, Mark. And it really has made a difference because that bit of land at the end of um, Jamaica Street, and I think it's Bridgewater Street, it's been various things over the past few years, and some of them have worked. Some of the initiatives have certainly worked, but some of them haven't. So at least this is hopefully going to be a permanent example of our links with that country and also somewhere where people can have the butties in in peace and uh, and quiet absolutely Mick. i mean i think the one thing that i said to, to peter at the time was that as i came past it, it you know there's there's always someone sat there doing something or just contemplating or having as you say a butty but for me it's it's about how we look after it going forward and i, I did, did come up during our conversation was was the legacy of it, you know, and I think a big thing about that for me would be how we put in plans to look after it going forward so it doesn't just become overgrown or, or even worse, just die out and not get looked after. Yeah, yeah. And also, uh, because this is very much a nighttime economy as well, that it's not full of, you know, beer bottles and cans and all that kind of stuff, um, which it has occasionally been in the past. So uh, anyway, o overall, it's got to be a positive mark, hasn't it? Absolutely. And I, and I think, you know, fair play to Peter, because obviously he didn't just want to go down there and, and chuck a load of yellow and blue flowers in it. He, he's actually thought about what it means to have a Ukrainian garden. So there's some thought process gone into it. And it's, you know, it's somewhere where Ukrainians in the city can go to take a bit of respite and to, you know, think about better times, shall we say. And I, and I think one of the things that he says, which Alex also says in the interview we'll hear in a minute, is that... Um, He's liaised with the local communities. He's done that. And I think once you do that, you've got a bit more of a stakeholder claim, haven't you? You know, um, it belongs more to the community than anyone else. And and if that's the case, then I think its, it's future will be fairly secure, you'd hope. Anyway, the whole of Merseyside has a strong history of community arts projects, and no one more so, perhaps, than the veteran Liverpool artist, Alex Carina, who spent the last... 40 years involved in a wide and fascinating range of projects, from the Garston Beach Project to working with drug addicts in the 90s, to more recently the famous Mona Lennon artwork for the 2008 Capital of Culture celebrations, and more recently his Leonardo collage. He's also a political activist and is well known in left-wing circles, particularly for his work with the trade union unemployment centres in Liverpool and Kirby in the 90s. Alex moved to Liverpool from Bradford more than 40 years ago and set up his studios in Garston, which is where I caught up with him. Excuse the state of the place, we had to flood not so long ago down here. But upstairs, it's a bit of a lance pan, and an off, and a studio. And this used to be a pub, didn't it? In... It used to be the Conservative Club, but before the Conservative Club, it was um, part of the Wellington Hotel back in the Victorian days. And if you look out here, underneath here was a trough and they bring the dray horses into here and feed and water the, the horses. And in the back of my studio, I've got a well. Wow. 
And at some point, I should excavate it and see if it still works. And the irony of this used to be used as the Conservative Club is not lost on me. Well, there's no use for them, is there, in Liverpool these days? And certainly not in gas. OK, well, we'll come through to... Um, this is your kitchen, really, but this is... Kitchen studio. This is your kitchen studio. Yeah. Wonderful. Yeah. With, with, as you'd expect, artworks on the wall, on the floor, paint everywhere. Wonderful, wonderful stuff. The Everyman, the Palm House in Sefton Park. Wonderful stuff. Well, let's sit down anyway and find out, find out about your artistic life. Okay. Now, your name is known at the moment, anyway, through your, through your artwork. And people will remember at the Capital of Culture Year in 2008, the huge portraits splashed everywhere on St. George's Hall everywhere mm. of the Mona Lennon. Yeah, it, it's funny that I'm known for that one picture, but I'd been around quite a while in the arts, but very much in community arts, so that when I moved to Liverpool, uh, the first job I got here, well, no, the first thing I did when I came here, I became a volunteer at the unemployment, unemployed centre in um, Hardman Street, Hardman Street uh, and their photographic unit there. And then I got a job with St. Helens and Knowsley Health Promotion Unit designing exhibitions and leaflets for, for their campaigns around the three jabs and around drugs. And that became an interest. And then I went on to set up an arts project at Kirby Unemployed Centre through my links with the Unemployed Centre movement on Merseyside. And we set up art skills. And in the Unemployed Centre in Kirby, they not only had an arts project, that was funded very much by uh, John Moore's foundation at the time. Bearing in mind, we're talking about the 80s, a heroin epidemic, uh, recession, unemployment, and so on. There was Kerber Response Theatre, a, wor a working class theatre group. It was great. And that was my first real uh, involvement in community arts uh, in Liverpool. Um, and then later, I went on to work for the Home Office uh, as head of their drugs prevention unit, based around what I'd learned and my experience in places like Kirby and the Health Authority. So your left-wing political views have run through your work in one way or another for the past 40 or so years, really. And, and Liverpool has very much been a part of that. It has, and it began in Bradford because uh, my father was a, an activist in terms of nuclear disarmament and a socialist, uh, as was my mother. So yes, it continued here in Liverpool until I uh, went to work for the Home Office, when one had to pause at the <laughs> activism and become a civil servant. What was interesting about the Home Office job was that... Contrary to popular opinion, the people who took up, there were 12 units throughout the country, drugs prevention units, and we all came from the caring professions. We weren't ex-policemen. Um, and the reason for that was the projects were about encouraging drugs prevention in communities and having a budget to fund communities' ideas and, and projects that they would like to see in their communities to prevent drug misuse based on their perception 
of the problems that they have with, with drugs. It was an innovative project. The irony is in Liverpool that when, when we actually added up uh, who we funded and what we funded, we were funding more community arts projects than the Arts Council on the basis that the best form of drugs prevention and getting kids off the streets and getting people involved was doing it through the arts. Did that last for a while? It lasted for six years and it began in the 90s and finished in the late 90s. Um, I had some health problems and I began to reflect on what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. And I took the decision that I would go half time and I went and did a, 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 a BA uh, in fine art at Wirral College. And in a way, that was uh, the beginning of my determination to do art for the rest of my life in one shape or way, shape or form. That's a brave jump, isn't it? Um, and it felt like it, but our kids were young enough and I also combined it with childcare and, and we muddled through. And I, I had great support from uh, the family and my wife at the time and, um, and came through it, yeah. And now we're sitting in your studio here in Garston. And I have to say, it's an amazing place because every room um, in this two-storey former pub is filled with your artwork. It's not just paintings, it's, it's sculptures, it's, it's everything really. Going back years and years, really, uh, the room up here that you went into, uh, there's work, framed work there from when I did my printmaking course in 1975. Uh, so, yes, it goes back a long way, but my heart was very much in community arts um, when I became involved in the unemployed centre uh, in Kirby and art skills, setting up art skills there, uh, where we basically set up an alternative art college that had printmaking, ceramics, textiles. We did live drawing. And the whole ethos of that project were, and, and it was also working with Kirby Drug Advice. The reason I mention this in a bit more detail, it was a unique project for the time. Because if you remember, in Liverpool, we were struggling uh, with both the heroin epidemic and then HIV came along. And it was a case of how do we implement a strategy of harm reduction that is harm reduction plus. In other words, you're just not trying to get them off the drugs. You've got to give them something to do, something that excites them, that interests them. And it doesn't just have to be art. It can be other things as well. So the Art Schools Project was the beginning of, of that harm reduction plus and that's how the path to working for the home office came about is that infrastructure there now as far as you know i see i see i see what you're getting at no there's nothing like that now art is almost seen as an optional extra on that and then fast forward to the mona lennon i can remember walking along lime street and seeing saint george's hall with this huge um projection of the Mona Lennon there. How, how did that come about? Uh, I was looking at appropriating 
old images to go on old dustbins. And the first Mona Lennon was a dustbin. And I remember when my friend Mike Loins came around to see how I was and to look at my work, he saw that and he said, I'd like to show that to a client. Anyway, he took it and showed it to Northwest Development Agency and they said they would like to launch it uh, at the launch of the Capital of Culture bid in the House of Commons and they'd like to do a limited edition of posters and give one out to everybody and all the rest of it. And I just said to Mike, well, do you want to see, should I show them the dustbins? And he said, for Christ's sake, no, lock them in a cupboard. <laughs> I mean, that's the last thing they want is to see Liverpool. They're trying to rebrand Liverpool, not with a dustbin. So we, we had a laugh about that. Have you still got the dustbin? Uh, no, I sold. I've, well, actually, I had three. I, I did three on old bins found in allotments. And I sold all three of those. Wise man, wise man. Yeah, well, yeah. After the Mona Lennon, what was interesting about that was people became interested in what else I'd been doing in terms of community arts. And the capital of culture, obviously, uh, were aware. And at that point, I got involved in community arts projects. Of course, you'd been working in community arts way before the Mona Lennon um, in 2008, hadn't you? Yeah, I was asked to come up with a, uh, an idea for some, uh, do a feasibility on a piece of public art, art, art in Horrocks Avenue uh, in memory of Jeremy, Jer Jeremiah Horrocks, uh, the astronomer who died at 22, predicted and observed the transit of Venus in 1639. And because it was Horrocks Avenue and they were actually doing some public works and they wanted something uh, sculptural and that would sort of uh, involve the community, I persuaded them to involve the local schools. So we did a community arts project where something like four schools contributed to a piece of public art in Horrocks Avenue. And it's a, it's a beautiful mosaic, and it's been there now for 15 years or so. Um, there are also other projects that we did, um, and perhaps the funniest for me was uh, Garston Beach, or imagine pyramids in Garston where it began as an idea for an April Fool's joke. And because it wasn't April, April um, I still thought it was worth doing. And um, we came up with an idea for having uh, a Garston Beach. And I thought, well, I think I'd seen something in the news about... Uh, someone making a beach of millions of tons of sand. And because of the tidal um, um, times and the tidal... What do you call it? Movement. Yeah, because of tidal movement, that in, in Garston it would be possible. And I rang someone at the university, researched it, and I said, would it be possible to import millions of tons of sand into Garston? And they said, yeah, they've done it further down the coast. And he said he, th he thought that would be you know, doable. So I said, look, if 
I came up with a project. Would you front it in terms of an interview? And he just laughed and said, yeah, okay then, I'd, I'd do that. So we put together the idea that we'd have an education, conservation and resource centre housed in three linked tetrahedron pyramids together with a hydroponics Lido pool using natural filter beds that would go out into the Mersey uh, with aquatic, aquatic plants uh, actually and not chemicals which are harmful to the environment. And it all made sense to us at the time. And we thought, well, let's have a new marina as well, Garston Beach, to be developed on part of the old docks and Iron Beach. And it made sense to us because it was at the time that we'd got Objective One funding. So I did a press statement and put a press statement out. And I went to the local pub about two days later for a pint and I heard someone saying, have you heard that stupid idea that the planners have come up with? Because what I said in the press statement is we've set up a think tank to consider the idea. And I mentioned the guy at the university. And this guy just said, they never consult the community, do they? And then I thought, oh, shit, what have I done? Um so then what I did was I contacted Ken Martin at um, the View 2 gallery in Liverpool. I contacted four or five schools in Garson. I went to Neighbourhood Regen and other funding bodies, and they all said it's a great idea. Why don't we put a project together that asks the people, the children, the schools, what they would like and put an artist in each school? And we did that, and we came with the next, came up with an absolutely fabulous exhibition. Musicians were involved as well, and it was Imagine Pyramids in Garston. And that came out of a rather mad idea, but it was a great community project that harnessed and raised the profile and consciousness of both the capital of culture and what you could do in Garston. And what was the genesis of the Leonardo painting, which is the one I've seen most recently, which is a, a kind of um, collage of John Lennon and the famous da Vinci? Yeah, it was a follow-on from, uh, from the Mona Lennon because I, I thought to maintain a theme, one of the pictures I always thought I would do something with, but I wasn't sure what was the Vitruvian man that, that Leonardo had done. And then suddenly one day when I was sort of trying to be more fauvist and started painting rather than doing collage, I thought I'll do a painting of uh, Vitruvian man. And as I started doing that, I was thinking John Lennon. So as I did with the Mona Lennon, I immediately started researching, has it been done before? Because I have this obsession. I don't want someone to suddenly say, oh, I did that. Where did you get the idea from? And I, I worked on, on that, and it hadn't been done before. So I, the Vitruvian man came about. I'm just pleased that, that both my Beatles or my 
Lennon pictures have actually been well received. And you also updated the Mona Lennon uh, painting, didn't you? Because you, you've given that a peace stroke in support of Ukraine element, haven't you? Well, I thought it was wholly appropriate because John Lennon was very much about peace. And I thought by putting the CND sign, attaching a whole host of symbolic images that and and colours of of Ukraine would be would be what he would he he, he would support you know give peace a chance and that's not that's not about taking sides. I, I don't think John Lennon would take sides. He, he would, his emphasis would be, uh, come on, it's a pointless war. Alex Karina there. Uh, fascinating stuff as ever. Mick, really interested to hear what he had to say about John Lennon. Yeah, I mean, I don't know whether he's right about whether Lennon would have taken sides. He doesn't think Lennon would have taken sides, and I think he's probably right there. Who knows? But the way he's adapted the Mona Lennon painting to reflect peace and to reflect Ukraine, I think, is is good. And as I say, he's he's always working, and the place itself, his studio, is great. And it's ironic that it's a former Conservative club, but it was also a pub, and um, as... As he said, he thinks there's a well somewhere uh, within the vicinity of the building. So knowing him, he'll find the well and be drawing water from it soon. Um, everything he touches seems to turn to magic. I think he's a great guy. And the studio uh, flat that he lives in is just artwork everywhere. Kitchen, bathroom. I should go down and have a look at it. It sounds fascinating. Um, tell me some more about his artworks. I mean, you said he was surrounded by artwork. What kind of stuff did he have on the walls? Well, he had stuff... Well, he, as he mentioned in the interview, he had his first textile work from 1975 when he was at college in um, Bradford. He's had. He's got a load of violins painted different colours. Uh, there's blue violins, yellow violins, you name it, round the wall. He's got his more recent... Um, work there to do with, you know, Leonardo and Mona Lennon. There was all kinds of stuff there. Um, uh, he showed me a photo of a bicycle um, and it, it was it was to criticise the coalition government of Nick Clegg and David Cameron. It was like a Mickey take of the coalition government. He's got tons of stuff. He's still involved uh, politically when he, you know, when he gets angry about something. So he, he's a bit of an inspiration. You touched on his political views a lot in the, uh, in the interview. I mean, it must be really bizarre for him to be in an old conservative club. Yeah, he, he, he enjoys the irony of it, you know, but um, it, it's definitely worth a visit. And uh, keep an eye out for his work. Um, it's in Lark Lane. It's in the little cafe in Garston that we went to for a cup of tea before. Um, all over the place. Alex Karina, his name is. Maybe an, another word about our sponsor then, Mick. Yeah, a big thanks again to the Baltic Creative CIC, which supports the digital and creative sector in the Baltic Triangle business area. Many thanks for their support. If you want to get in touch with us with any story ideas or any feedback, then we'd love to hear from you. The email address is... It's info at BalticTrianglePodcast.com. That's info at BalticTrianglePodcast.com. You'll be hearing from us again in a month or so's time. If you have got any stories, do send them to us and uh, have a good month. Always a pleasure to have you with us. Uh, thanks so much for listening to what we got to say. And uh, we look forward to speaking to you again very soon. All the very best. <laughs>